Well, good morning, faith family. It's good to see you. If you got your Bible, if you will make your way to the book of Ecclesiastes, you can just turn to the middle, probably in Psalms, go right two books, and you'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes. While you're turning there, I want to give a very, very special welcome to our Lakeville campus, right? We are so excited for you guys. Man, we have... We have prayed for this day, we have longed for this day, and today is finally here. And so congratulations on uh, today, just the launch of that campus, and we are so, so grateful for you. I know Pastor Dan and the team there are going to serve you well, and we can't wait to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel in Lakeville. And we also want to say hello to those in our venue as well. Also want to say hello to those who are meeting in the trash can out in the back. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We got people, it seems like, everywhere, and we're delighted that you're here. And today we start a journey together. We're going to be on a journey over the next several weeks through what I think is one of the most fascinating books in all the Bible. It's a book called Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series The Search, because just like that video that you've just watched, everybody every day is searching for meaning. Everybody has questions about life in order to make sense out of life, and they're searching for answers. Well, God, in His grace, has given us a book specifically for those of us, which is all of us, that's trying to find meaning. It's going to be intense. It's going to be fun. We're going to have an awesome time working through this book over the next several weeks uh, together. Now, I do want to say up front, I'm going to be a little more technical this morning. If you're here and this is kind of like your first day at Berean, uh, this is going to be a little more technical than I normally am because I'm starting a series. We need to set this up well. It's kind of like laying a foundation that we can then build walls around in the coming weeks. So uh, let's look at just the first two verses of Ecclesiastes this morning, okay, just to kind of introduce the book and give us a taste of what the book is going to be about. If you're able to stand, please do so. For the honor of reading God's Word, we'll ask those in Lakeville and those in our venue as well to stand for God's Word. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and just read here verse 1 and 2. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is God's Word, so let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us together today. We are gathered here for worship. We want to hear from you. And Lord, I am convinced that these words are inspired of you, that you breathe these words out by your Spirit because we need them. Every one of us is searching for answers, searching for meaning, trying to make sense out of life in a fallen world. Thank you for giving us this book. And we just pray that today and the next several weeks as we work through this, that you would truly give us the answer, the meaning to life. Only the Spirit can do that. So we ask it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What do you do when somebody has the courage to say what you have only had the courage to think? How do you respond when somebody actually has the courage to say out loud something you have only had the courage 
to think. You know, the response to that kind of person, the response to that kind of situation is not always positive. It's not always received well. That's exactly what happened to one of the most famous authors in the 20th century. Uh, You will know this author by his classic works like um, Mere Christianity, uh, The Screwtape Letters, Reflection on the Psalms, or what's probably his most popular because of the movie series that was done based off the books, The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, my guess is everybody here knows who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the author C.S. Lewis. That's exactly right. C.S. Lewis is beloved in Christian circles. He's even highly respected in many non-Christian circles. Lewis was known for his literary creativity, like in Narnia. His robust theology, like in mere Christianity. His intellectual superiority. It is why people throughout the 20th and 21st centuries have celebrated the writings of C.S. Lewis. Except one. There is one of Lewis's works, one of his books, that many Christians did not know how to handle. They did not know what to do with it. It's his book entitled, A Grief Observed. And in it, listen to what Lewis writes. Quote, Where is God? Oh, when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, you will be, so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what will you find? You'll find a door slammed in your face. You'll hear the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence becomes. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? Not that I am in danger of ceasing to believe in God. Oh no, the real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not there is no God, but this is what God is really like. Because it doesn't matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Lewis wrote those words shortly after his wife died of cancer at the age of 45. What do you do when somebody has the courage to say out loud what you have only had the courage to think? This is C.S. Lewis, a man of great theology, a man who knew great truth. Uh, Are you kidding me? A man of enormous influence on Christians in the 20th, 21st century. And yet, even he was searching for answers. 
Even he was searching for meaning in a fallen world. And faith family, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes does for us. It is, in many ways, like Lewis's A Grief Observed. That is, there are so many Christians that don't know how to handle this book. Proverbs? Oh, we love Proverbs. Song of Solomon? Oh, we really love Song of Solomon. But Ecclesiastes? Eh. We don't know how to handle all this raw, real honesty about life in a fallen world. Because if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know it is not filled with pretty kittens. Oh, or pink ribbons or precious moments figures. No, 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 no. You will not find any of those here. What you will find is an honest reality check about how life really is. It will force you to say something's wrong. Something is wrong in the world in which we live. Like my favorite theologian, Johnny Cash. That's why I wore black. You wonder why I always dress in black? Why you never see bright colors on my back? I wear the black for the poor and beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. Oh, I'd love to wear a rainbow every day and tell the world that everything's okay, but I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back till things get brighter. I'm the man in black. Or like the scene in the movie uh, early 90s uh, called Grand Canyon with Danny Glover. There's a scene where an attorney's car breaks down on the side of the road and he calls a tow truck to come. And before the tow truck gets there, some gang members start to harass him. And then the tow truck arrives and the tow truck driver, played by Danny Glover, gets out. And this is what he says to the gang members as they're trying to harass him. Quote, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And he's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is. Does that resonate with anybody? Lakeville venue, does that resonate with anybody? Like you look at the world and you just say, it just doesn't always make sense. It is Life in a fallen world. And that's what, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at. We're going to have an honest conversation about life in this world and how we find meaning in it. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be challenging. Come here, folks. I'm going to say things you thought you'd never hear in church. Okay? I will push some of you to the edge on purpose. But you've got to promise me, if you've been here 30 years or this is your first day, you've got to promise me that you will commit to doing your soul some good and going through it. Will it be challenging? Will it be intense? Will there be things where like, that's in the Bible? Yes. But your soul needs it. Because this book is given to us for the instruction and edification of our souls.
So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm just going to set it up for you. This is the teaser. This is the appetizer before the main course. I just want to give you a flavor of the book. And listen, you know, I'm usually not extremely technical, but this morning I've got to be real detailed at the beginning here to set this book up well, because it's, you're good, it'll make sense in a little bit as to how the rest of the weeks will be understood in light of this foundation. So the first thing I want us to look at is the author of this book. Normally I would not spend this much time on the author of the book, but I need to in this occasion, and you'll see why. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, on the surface, and probably the most mainstream uh, accepted view as to who the author is of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And it would appear that way, right? I mean, king of Jerusalem, check, Son of David, check. If you keep reading in chapter 1, like verse 16, you're going to notice this this individual has all kinds of wisdom. Do you remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. If you go into chapter 2, you'll discover that this person has an enormous amount of wealth and possessions, which certainly Solomon had. So on the surface, it appears as though it's Solomon, but I believe as a closer look at this will prove that it's not Solomon. And by the way, I'm not really trying to convince you it's not Solomon. I don't even care if you do believe it's Solomon. It doesn't change the point of the book at all. But for you to understand how we're going to be approaching the book, I need to show you why I don't think it's Solomon. Number one, look back at verse one. Right? I know the nerds are loving this, right? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, here's the first thing right here. Solomon is not mentioned by name. You say, big deal. Well, here's why it's a big deal. Because the beginning of Proverbs mentions Solomon specifically by name. The beginning of the Song of Solomon mentions Solomon specifically by name. So it breaks trend as to why Solomon is not specifically mentioned. That's not enough. Number two. The word son, the words of the preacher, the son of David, is a generic Hebrew word for descendant. In other words, it's not biological son. It just simply means someone from David's line. That's still not enough. Number three, look at verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel. The the problem here is that in the Hebrew is past tense, right? I have been. I was king. It's past tense in the Hebrew. Here's the problem. Solomon died as king. There wasn't a point when he wasn't king because he died as king. That doesn't make sense in order for it to be Solomon. There's more. Verse 16 of chapter 1. Hang with me. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Do you see that phrase? Look at it again in chapter 2, verse 9. You'll see the same phrase. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Well, here's a problem. There was no all who were before him. There was only David. There was one guy, David, who was before Solomon. It doesn't seem to make sense of all those who were before him. And this is the ultimate kicker for me, okay, Uh, is look how you hear two voices, okay? Not voices in your head, two voices in this book, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 1 again. Follow me. 
the words of the preacher. Do you see that? Now look at verse 12. I, the preacher. That's basic English to know. you got two different voices going on there. There's the words of the preacher and there's I, the preacher. Now you see this also at the end of the book. Look at chapter 12. You'll notice it also on the screen. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. Non-nerds, hang with me. Okay, we're almost done. Verse 9, chapter 12, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now look at verse 12. This is really important. My son, that's a key as to what's going on here. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. In other words, here's what you got. Okay, everybody look here. This is fun. You have a voice at the beginning of the book. You have another voice that picks up into chapter 1 and the rest of the book. And then the first voice, the narrator that begins it, comes back at the end. That's huge. Which means the book of Ecclesiastes is likely a form of wisdom literature in the ancient Near East that was extremely common where, follow me, a storyteller, a narrator, in this case a father, is teaching someone, in this case his son, wisdom in the world. How? By using a famous persona of someone everybody would have understood to make this point. Are you with me? If he can't find meaning in these things, you can't find meaning in these things. Let me give you an example. It would be like me teaching my son how to find meaning in life through the eyes of LeBron James. Right? Somebody who in the world's eyes would have everything. If he can't find meaning in those things, nobody can find meaning in those things in order to teach my son where meaning is really found. Let me read this from one evangelical commentator and then we'll move on. Okay? So why, quote, why does Ecclesiastes give the impression that it's written by Solomon? Because in ancient times it was very common for people to write fictional autobiographies. That is, in order to communicate his message, a writer would take on a persona of someone famous like Solomon. This was not done in order to deceive anybody. In fact, many of these were based on a life of someone from history. Many evangelicals, and I am one of those, think Ecclesiastes is the same kind of book. Listen, the author has taken a well-known figure like Solomon from history and used that person's life to make a spiritual point. I think that's exactly what's taking place in Ecclesiastes. And if you don't buy that and you think it's Solomon, that's perfectly fine. I'll still buy you coffee, all right? It is not a big deal. It doesn't change the point of the book. But for you to understand how we're going to be approaching this book, I had to lay that foundation. Now, who is this voice, this preacher? Look back at verse 1. The words of the preacher. Well, who is this person? Uh, You might look in the margin of your Bible because many of your Bibles will have the Hebrew word, and it's actually a name called Koheleth. 
Koheleth. Now, I can't spend a lot of time here other than say this is a Hebrew name. So why do they translate it the preacher? Because the name Koheleth means one who assembles like a preacher. Like you're assembled here today listening to somebody speak. But it's not a position, it's a person. It's a name, a Hebrew name called Koheleth. He's the main character. So here's the summary. You ready? And then we're going to move on and have some fun. Not that this hasn't been fun. I've had fun. Uh, Here's the summary. You have a father teaching his son wisdom through the character Koeleth, who is Solomon-like. That is why it appears there are so many parallels to Solomon to show him this. How do you make sense? How do you find meaning in a fallen world? Okay, we got it? Make sense? All the nerdy stuff is over. Revenge of the nerds has been had, and the, the technicalities, we can move on. That's the setup of a book. Now, what's the, what's the argument of the book? Because there's two voices, of that it's clear, the narrator and Coelith, there are also two main points. There's the, this is so much fun, there's the point that Coelith is going to make, and then there's the point the narrator is going to use to make from that. Okay, so Coelith is going to say, here's my conclusion. And then the narrator of the father is going to teach his son based on that. Here's the ultimate conclusion. Are you with me? So here's Coelith's conclusion. It's so much fun. Give this guy a hug. Verse two. Vanity of vanities, says Coelith, the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's from the redundancy department of redundancy. Vanity, 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 all is vanity, which just simply means meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all empty. It's like being a Chicago Bears fan this year. What's the point? Three games in, all right? I'm one of those, so I can say that, right? In fact, I'm going to be bringing a lot of media, a lot of culture into the Ecclesiastes series because Ecclesiastes is everywhere. So let me give you a modern-day translation as to what Coelith is saying. All right, whoever thought they'd hear Queen at church, all right? Any Queen fans, all right? But that's Ecclesiastes. That's what Coelith is saying. Nothing really matters. Everything is vanity. It's ultimately meaningless. Now, before you chalk him up as being Debbie Downer, uh, overly pessimistic, way too depressing right here, he's being rational. What I mean by that is he has reasons to come to this conclusion. He's not having a bad hair day. He's not just upset because his team lost. He's looked at life in a fallen world and because of reasons that he's seen come to the conclusion, all is vanity. Now, I'm going to give you some of those reasons throughout the coming weeks. I'm only going to give you his trump card. This is not that trump. Another The trump card, all right? This is his ace of spades to lay it down and say, here's why I can come to the conclusion that all is vanity, right? Look at chapter 9, or you can follow along on the screen. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Here's what it says. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. I've looked at everything under the sun. 
And how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Now listen to verse 2. It is the same for all. Because the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And what event is that that happens to all? Death. Look at chapter 7, verse 2, or you'll see it on the screen. It is better to go to the house of mourning, death, than a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. This is the summary statement of it all. The point of life is this, according to Coelith, there is no point because you die. Give him a hug, right? That's what he's saying. Now, he's being honest. He's being rational. He's not being pessimistic. Regardless of what you want to say about him, don't treat him like C.S. Lewis and shun him because he's saying out loud what you've only had the courage to think. He is saying because of death, life is meaningless. Make a million dollars, get a Ph.D., have a great marriage, win the lottery, become CEO, or don't get any of that. It doesn't matter. You still die. It's the Death is the one certain thing in life, and that makes everything you accomplish in this life temporary, vapor-like, empty, and therefore meaningless. Now, some of you would say, well, then why care about anything? I mean, why even live if you had that perspective on life? Oh, Coelith would say there's somewhat of a reason to live. Here it is, chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what you will do as you wait for death. Okay, verse 18, chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, here you go, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, it's the best you can do. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. God. Here's a modern day translation of what Coelith is saying. Alright, that's almost quoted right out of Ecclesiastes, right? Who thought you'd hear Dave Matthews at church, right? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you will die. If no matter what you accomplish, you're going to die, then the best thing you can do is enjoy what you can while you can because tomorrow either it or you will be gone. Now this is where I'm saying all of us at some point arrive here if we're honest about life in a fallen world. Uh, I'll give you an example in my life. My father-in-law, godly man, loved Jesus, served the church faithfully as a deacon, disciplined with his money to save for retirement so that he and his wife could retire early, travel and do things together, and enjoy the grandchildren. Just a couple of months after he retires, we find out he's got cancer, 
gone. You make sense out of that. Didn't make any sense at all. See, all of us, if we're willing to be that honest, look at things that happen in a fallen world and say, no, that's not right. That doesn't make sense. You get married and it lasts six months or you get married and it's the 60 best years of your life. Doesn't matter. Both end in death. So go to Starbucks, get a latte at the cafe, a piece of chocolate cake and your favorite book and enjoy life while you can. That's what Coelho is saying. He's saying if you take a really honest look at the way the world is, that's the conclusion you will reach. Enjoy life while you can. Or this modern translation. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a full Here it is. Now, who would have imagined they'd ever hear Ecclesiastes in a country song, right? Or, I don't know, like every country song, right? <laughs> Live like you're dying because Coelith would say, You are! Go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing. Ride a bull named Fu Manchu. Live like you're dying because you are. Again, a lot of media because it's all over our culture, like a scene from Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall, where, it's so funny, where a kid refuses to do his homework because he's just learned that the universe is expanding. It's all going to end, so why do my homework? And so his mom, who's very concerned about her boy, takes him to a doctor and listens to their conversation and what advice the doctor gives. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something he read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart, and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. It won't be expanding for billions of years yet, Albie. We've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here, huh? Huh? That's Ecclesiastes! What? The universe is expanding. It's all going to end. So what's the point? The point is this. Enjoy yourself while you can. Coelho's argument is basically this. If you've been dealt aces, right? if this is your hand, you'd better play them. Because tomorrow, you're probably going to be dealt this. Deuces! 
and you will have lost your opportunity to play the hand you were dealt. Now, it's because of this perspective, and some of you who've ever studied this book know that some people say uh, that Ecclesiastes is life without God right? They take all this, uh, what feels depressing, I just call it honesty, and they say it's what life is like because it's under the sun without God. That's true. I'm not arguing with that. I'm not denying that, but there is a problem with saying that's the point of of Ecclesiastes because look back at chapter 5, verse 18, the verses that we just read a few moments ago, and look at it again. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Q. Dave Matthews. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life, here it is, that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power enjoy them. Right? Here's the problem. Coelith believes in God. In fact, there were no atheists in the ancient Near East. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Everybody believed in God in some way. This isn't life without belief in God. No, Coelith is saying this, hear me. God is the creator and the giver of life, which is why, just like C.S. Lewis said, if you take an honest look at life, sometimes it will appear. Hear the words coming out of my mouth. It will appear. God doesn't care at all. Door shut, double bolted, followed by silence. Coelith believes in God, and he believes this is how God, at least based on the data he looks at, it's the way God has set it up. It's all vanity. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Now, what do we do with this? And go home is not the answer, okay? So don't, and not come back next week is not the answer, right? What do we do with this kind of honesty? Here's what some have tried to do. They do this. They try to get a quick fix. By quick fix, I mean, okay, life doesn't make sense, so just give me a Bible verse. Okay, all things work together for good. Okay, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Okay, I got my Bible, Band-Aid, quick fix. I can go on. Number two, they do a quick escape. This is the Dorothy in her ruby red slippers, right? La, 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 no place like home. This is not happening. I'm just going to ignore everything that's going on and act like it isn't real. Some of you here, some of you at Lakeville, some of you at Venue, you've done this. What it is is it's personal, spiritual, relational hibernation. Your body's here, but your spirit's not. Others do this. They do quick conformity. This is the one I think I faced most growing up. Um, boy, not, not for my parents in any way, but just kind of the church culture. Boy, you don't ever question God. You suck it up and be a good Christian. Just conform. Here's the problem with those approaches. Are you listening? They don't work. And not only do they not work, they're not good for your soul. You've got to be as honest as the book of Ecclesiastes is being about life in this world. Because the Bible is calling you to be this honest. 
That's why I love the Bible. You've heard me say, this is why I find the Bible very refreshing. Because it's real. Read the Psalms. Start with Psalm 42. This is real feeling, emotion, conclusion based on the data that we often see around us. Well, fortunately, Coelith is not the only voice in the book. Amen? Right? I mean, this is really bad if we prayed right now and went home. Right? He's not... That's his main point, but it's from that main point that the father wants to teach his son the ultimate main point, which we find at the end of the book. Look at chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 13. So here's the main point from the the ultimate voice, the father, the narrator. Verse 13 says, the end of the matter. So here's the summary statement. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That is, this is the end of the matter. This is the ultimate conclusion. This is how you make sense out of life in a fallen world. This is how you find meaning, okay? I need every eye here. I need every ear listening, okay? Because I'm going to read in one sentence what the summary of what we'll learn in this book is. Now, I'm going to do it as a father is instructing his son. Here it is. Son... You have got to learn to live by faithful obedience. Fear God and keep His commandments. Not because life makes sense, but precisely because it doesn't. You got to learn to live by faithful obedience, not because life makes sense, but precisely because it doesn't. If life made sense, why would you need faith? If your approach, Christian or non-Christian for that matter, is this, I will obey God when life makes sense, you will reach the conclusion, vanity, vanity, vanity. But if you will be faithful in your obedience to what God has called you to in the face of life not making sense, which is living by faith, then and only then will you find meaning. And that is a valuable lesson to teach your son. That is a valuable lesson for you to learn in a world that doesn't make sense. Son, what you need to know in this world is it is broken and it is fallen. And life is more than the data that you see. But it's only through the eyes of faith, faithful obedience, fear God, keep his commandments, that you will find it. I think that's worth coming back the next few weeks to learn, amen? Because you won't find the answer to your questions until you get that answer. So let me give you a few things and we'll wrap it up. The approach to this book, just a couple of things I want to warn you about is be cautious. Be cautious. Here's what I mean by that. You can make the book of Ecclesiastes say anything. I'm going to be, and I'm, like, I'm not exaggerating here. I'm being full, full honesty. I think Ecclesiastes is the most misquoted book in the entire Bible. I bet 90% of the time I hear somebody quote a verse out of Ecclesiastes, I shake my head and say, it's not what it means. Because it's wisdom literature, it's so easy to pluck a verse out and then just quote it 
but it's outside of the overall structure which I've tried to lay for you today of understanding how that verse fits, right? Uh, So I'll give you one. You could pluck out this. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. You just pluck that out, go build a whole theology on that and see how your life turns out, right? I mean, don't pluck a verse and don't misquote the whole book. Like, honey, would you please take the trash out? Nope. Preacher said all is vanity. I ain't going to do it. Like, don't do that. Okay? That is not the way you apply this book, right? So be cautious in how you apply it. I know some of you guys, you're ready to use that one. Like, ain't doing it. It's vanity, right? Number two, and this is important, be balanced. Be balanced. And that's going to be my job as I take us through this journey. Be balanced. And here's what I mean. There are some people that love the dark. Some of you are like, turn the lights down. I'm wearing black next Sunday like the pastor did. I just, come on, let's go gloomy. I mean, you just love to wallow in just the darkness of it all. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. Okay? We have hope as Christians. Hello? Right? We, 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 we address the darkness. We don't, we don't run away from the darkness, but we don't live in the darkness. Right? But here's the other extreme, and that's be chipper for Jesus. Right? Get your leather-bound Bible and your little precious moments bookmark, and everything's going to be A-OK, brother. Like that, that form of Christianity just, it's not real. It's not, it's the put your head in the sand and just act like everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. No, everything's not fine. So what we're going to do is what's called, I call Christian realism, right? We will balance the reality of life in a fallen world with the hope of Jesus Christ, right? And in that, we will find the balance we need for this book. Third thing is be honest. Be honest. I need you to come every week ready to engage with honesty, okay? And to hear things like you're hearing this morning and say, yeah, I can handle that. I'm willing to take that. Because listen, the gospel will not be good news to you until you've worked through this. The gospel will not be good news to you until you work through this. Okay, so here's the answer to the book and we're done. You ready? Everybody right here. Koheleth. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, both come to a conclusion that this doesn't make any sense. They, they look at their circumstances. They look, Coelith looks at the data of life in a fallen world and says, meaningless. It doesn't make sense. And listen, they both did this in the face of death. You tracking with me? For Lewis, it was the death of his wife. For Coelith, it was, it's the end of all mankind. I mean, righteous, unrighteous, man who keeps an oath, man who doesn't, doesn't matter. That's the end of all mankind. So in the face of death, they were honest about this doesn't make sense, and they were shunned for it. But I would argue that they're actually in really good company. Because I can think of a man who did the same thing. I can think of a man who never sinned and yet was treated as though he had committed every sin. I can think of a man who came to give light, but the world rejected him because they wanted darkness instead. 
I can think of a man who loved but was rejected in return. I can think of a man who came to give life, but like Lewis and like Coelith, ended up facing death head on. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he had the courage to say what many others have only had the courage to think, namely, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in Lewis's words, go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You see, faith family, Jesus, 10,000 times more than Lewis, more than Coelith, more than you, more than me, faced the reality of life in a fallen world. But he didn't run away from that reality. He faced it, hallelujah, all the way to the other side. And that's why the search for meaning starts and ends with Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is good news for those of you here today that are searching for meaning in life. That's why no matter how meaningless life will seem at times, it is worth the living just because he lives. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you for this book. Oh, I am so excited of what you're going to teach us over the next several weeks. That there is meaning. There is an answer when life doesn't make sense. Thank you for giving us a book like this that gives us the freedom to be honest about our search about those things that we're running to every day to say, maybe I can find my answer in this. Thank you for your grace that will show us that that answer can only be found in Him. And so if there's somebody here today at Lakeville, in Venue, wherever, who is searching for answers, may they find the answer today in Jesus Christ. May He be the one, for He is the only one that can give our life true meaning. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.